Welcome to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. My guest today is Dr. Roberto Rodriguez, or Dr. Sintli, as he's sometimes known. He's an associate professor in the Mexican-American Studies Department at the University of Arizona. He's a longtime award-winning journalist and columnist. His latest book is entitled Yoki, a warrior summoned from the spirit world, testimonials on violence. Yes, it's always great to be here. This is monumental, a memoir uh, talking about really important events from your life. It's uh, a book that probably should have been written probably 12 years from now, but I've actually gone through neurological exams. The consensus is I'm losing my memory. I know it sounds half funny, but it really is. That is, I really am. So I thought I should write down what I might forget in the future. Part of it has to do with we're in the midst of a crisis. You know, uh, the ever since Michael Brown was killed in 2014, there has been over 6,000 people killed in the country. Uh, proportionately, the red, black, and brown communities of this nation being killed by police. Correct. By law enforcement. Law enforcement. So that's 6,000 people since 2014. It didn't start in 2014. No, I, I count from 1492. I was almost killed in 1979. I remember and remember violence from 1968, 1970. You know, but in a way that was in a distance or at a distance, sort of. I mean, it literally happened right down the street from me. Like when the journalist Ruben Salazar was killed, it was right down the street from where I lived. But at the same time, this other thing was more direct. You know, I was almost killed by sheriffs, deputies. It was a selective enforcement bureau uh, for photographing a pretty brutal episode of uh, violence against a young man. I uh, photographed it, and then they turned on me. Uh, as a result, I... Partly for survival purposes, you know, I had two trials that lasted seven and a half years. But at the same time, in all that time, I began to research the topic. And that's why I kept going back, like, to the 50s, the 40s, the 30s. You know, you had Zoot Zoot in the 40s. You had a, a Bloody Christmas in the 50s. In the 30s, that's when you get to the lynchings. Most people don't know that Mexicans were lynched, uh, Chinese people were lynched. American Indians were lynched. You know, people know the topic, but they don't really know specifics. But African Americans obviously were lynched. But again, most people don't know that that actual history. So they most likely don't know the history of lynchings against Mexican peoples. Prior to that era, you're almost there at 300 years of colonialism, of imperialism. So that's a pretty violent history. And so it's nothing new. And uh, so you're correct. It didn't start at that time. But you did start writing this particular book around 2014? Thereabouts. Having lived this, you know, for all these years, 11 years, if I'm not mistaken, prior to Rodney King. You know, that's how far back it goes for me. So by the time Michael Brown gets killed, uh, I already know this topic, you know, like the back of my hand. I... um. Notice the discourse, you know, the national conversation. And like in many other fields, it was very black and white. And it was awkward because it was almost like from all sides, 
In other words, you're not supposed to stray from the conversation. It's black and white. That's it. And so I thought, like, well, normally that would be okay, but in this particular instance, the violence that I know goes literally goes back 1492. And so I've I've made it my life's work, so to speak, to always talk about red, black, and brown. You know, not one or the other. You know, not one being more or less. These are communities in crises, and it's very much comes from the very same place for the most part. You know, that people don't know this—that's that's a different story. But I do know this. You know, and um, that's why I repeat: it's it's we're in a crisis, extreme crises. What was it that got you to start writing the first words on this particular book, Yoki, a warrior summoned from the spirit world? Testimonials on yeah. violence. So in 1979, when I photographed that young man being brutalized, I was scared for my life. It was, it was on Whittier Boulevard in East LA, and I remember it was the opening night of a movie called Boulevard Nights, literally about the boulevard, and it was packed. I mean, thousands of cars. And at the same time, I saw what looked like at least 100 police cars on the boulevard before any of this happened. So when I got to this one corner where I usually always went, it was the corner of Whittier and McDonald. If anybody's ever been to L.A. or East L.A. recently, there's a big arch which says Whittier Boulevard. It was right there. By the time I got there, I had already seen, in other words, how packed it was, not just cars but police. And so when I saw the young man being beaten, probably about 10 to 12 officers or deputies, I wasn't, like, freaked out, but at the same time, my survival instinct told me, you better head in the other direction. And I remember, you know, not only did I work for Lowrider Magazine at the time, but also I grew up, like, down the street. And so a lot of the people there saw me and knew me, and they and they told literally told me, they said, hey, isn't that your job, <laughs> like, to photograph the, the beating? And I remember telling him, I said, of course it is, but I'm not going to get killed. So I went, and just as about as I was about to get into my car, the guy had earlier been, you know, screaming about God, you know. And this probably was around 10.30 p.m. around there. That's why initially I ignored him. I, when I went inside the liquor store and came out, he looked like Moses, like he, had, he was parting the sea, the Red Sea, but it was parting lowrider cars, you know. I took photographs, and then that's when the cops came. When the cops came, he ran backwards. They caught him and started beating on him. And again, that's when I started hitting in the other direction. And with the screams and the, and the beating, it was not a pleasant sound. But as I was almost ready to get into my car, the sound got even more eerie because all of a sudden it felt like, and it sounded like there was silence, total silence, only interrupted by the riot sticks hitting his body, you know. And at that point, I just said, I can't do this. I can't leave. <laughs> I returned, photographed. I must have taken three, four photographs. And I remember the very last photograph was of one of the officers, one of the deputies pointing at me. And then they came after me at that point. I got hit, I don't know how many times, a lot of times. But the main blow was to my forehead, right between the eyes. And my skull was fractured. Ended up in the hospital. I was there for three days, and when I was ready to leave, they told me I couldn't leave because I had been arrested. Of course, I was shocked. 
it turns out I was arrested for assaulting four police officers, uh, assault with a deadly weapon, and assault on the officers. When I received the blow to the forehead, I don't know what happened next. All I know is that I was on the ground with my hands crossed with my face down. Notice all the weight of my body was on my arms. And uh, out of the blue, I hear a little voice, you know, a screaming voice, but it was tiny. It sounded like a mouse. And then I became conscious that that voice was directed at me, and it was the, the deputy, and I figured that he wanted to handcuff me. But I was paralyzed, and I couldn't move, so I started to rock my body, and then I managed to, you know, give him my right arm. And then later, same thing, and then the left arm. Later on, I was trying to figure out, like, how did my body ever get in that position? So, I, you know, when you become co unconscious, I don't know that you become conscious that you're unconscious, you know? So I wasn't conscious that I had lost consciousness. But at that point where I started hearing those noises, I think that's when I became conscious again. But again, that, I didn't realize that until I, I don't know how long later, you know, could have been a month or a year. I don't even remember when. There was no sense of timing myself. But at a certain point, I realized that I had lost consciousness. For 20 years, I lost the ability to dream. It was pretty violent, everything. that I, I got arrested over 60 times. Before that, after that, after, during the after. afterwards. After that, I got arrested all the time. So I had all this trauma within me. I, that's why I tell people, I said, I never had one nightmare ever, even to this day. Because all my nightmares were when I was awake, you know. I was always getting pulled over and on and on. But one time in, in Mexico, I was at a cornfield, and this farmer was teaching us about why they put the maguey in the middle of the cornfield. And he cut it open. What is that? The maguey, it's a plant where you get either uh, pulque or tequila, you know. And it's either for ceremonial purposes or for tequila, you know, for drinking. Anyway, so... I was given some agua miel, the, the liquid of the maguey, and that night I actually hallucinated or dreamt, and it was a pretty frightening dream. What it was, I saw myself, I was myself, I don't know what you would call it, my consciousness, I was above and my body was below and I could see my body sprawled, you know, with blood. I was in a pool of blood. And I became conscious that that was me. So, of course, I, even within that realm, I was like, wait a minute. How could I be down there when I'm up here? And I said, unless I'm dead. I came to realize, I said, no wonder I don't remember my dreams. I've probably been dreaming all this time, but my brain, my mind does not permit me to remember my dreams for survival purposes. So a little bit later, a few years later, I, I had a, I met a friend and I told him about this dream, how it bothered me. And he was a danzante, you know, like an Aztec dancer. And he says, don't even worry about that. He goes, all warriors have to die. And I told him, I said, yeah, yeah well, why? <laughs> and he goes, so we could come back and fight again. And so I remember that. That might have been like the year 2000, around there. All I know is that um, when I did, like 10 years later, perhaps, when I was doing my book on maize, the, what's the name of it? Our sacred maize is our mother. When I did that book... At the end of that process, I came across a codex of ancient writings from the, you know, the old days. And it spoke about Yolki, Yolki warriors. And what 
a Yolki warrior is, is some a warrior that lives in the spirit world, and they get summons to come fight in this world. And when I remember when I read that, I said, oh, my God, like, now I finally figured it out. That's when it came together. I was unconscious. And then beyond that, I said, I died. I died that night, and I was summoned back. It's March 23rd and March 24th. Of course, the question for me was, well, who summons me back? And, of course, I said, uh, I think that was me. <laughs> so I summoned myself back. I, I don't think I was ready to go at that time. You're listening to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. My guest today is Roberto Rodriguez, or Dr. Sintley, Associate Professor at Mexican-American Studies at the University of Arizona, longtime award-winning journalist, columnist. His latest book is entitled Yolki, A Warrior Summoned from the Spirit World, Testimonials on Violence. You asked me uh, earlier or when I started and why. Uh, so I, I mentioned that the conversation was always in black and white. So what happened, once I started to do it, I actually finished the book, turned it into my publisher, and she sent it back to me. And she says, hey, this is a memoir on violence, but you're not in the book. And I said, no, of course not. I, go, I, already, I already wrote a book about my trials and all that, but this is about how I, it's like the after effect how I live the world, how I see the world after. And especially like now when all these people are getting killed, you know, like I, that's what I wanted to write about, like how that violence continues to affect me. I didn't want to rehash what happened to me. I already did that. And she says, well, no, I understand that, but like for a book, for a memoir on violence, you can't have two chapters missing, you know? And so I said, I said, I don't know. I don't really like the idea of writing about what happened to me again. I always advise parents, siblings, spouses, that they don't need to do that, you know. The best thing to do is do it once via a recording, a videotape. You know, say what happened, and then thereafter people can go and listen, etc. Because it's very damaging. I, I think I'm okay nowadays, you know. But I, I've seen people that are traumatized from different kinds of traumas. They go up in public, they break down almost every single time. The publisher said, well, well, you have to make a decision because it doesn't work for us without your, you know, your, the, what happened to you and your trials. You know, my trials are incredibly dramatic. They were seven years apart, criminal charges and then a lawsuit. I came back two weeks later. I said, I can give you 10 pages, not 40, but I give you 10. She goes, okay. And that was that. And I'll tell you, it's for my own health, it was not good at all. Because, as I said, it's not healthy, you know. Because I'm looking at my future. And I don't like the idea of every single time. Like I said, a recording is different. Because a recording, again, I won't have to do it over and over and over. I could just say, hey, go listen to this. I'm, I would rather talk about, like, what do I want to do now? And what I want to do is ba on the basis of all the things that I've studied, as I mentioned, 6,000 cases since 2014, and the question is how many convictions? Uh, you can probably use both your hands or maybe one hand, and then on top of that, how many have are doing hard time as a result? That's probably less than a hand. So if you know about the United Nations and the Organization of American States, they have an international criminal court. And that's where I want to go. 
people have gone to the the convention on racism, the elimination of violence, you know, the, all these different UN bodies, but none of them are criminal in nature. Because to be denounced that the U.S. judicial system is racist is like, hello, so water's wet, you know, like, where's the news? So I, I'm, in other words, we need to, beyond denunciation, we need to actually put people on trial, criminal trial. And I think that the violence that exists in this country fits the definition. They exist only when all remedies are exhausted. And I'm saying that's what we're talking about. There is no judicial system. There is no justice in this country. You know, I, I, I win two trials, but there was no third trial. That is, I won a lawsuit, and earlier I won criminal charges against me, you know. But where were the criminal charges against the officers that almost took my life, you know? In other words, it never happens. And, you know, most people are conditioned. They drop charges on somebody, like, oh, I won. You go, no, you didn't win. You got you almost got killed. Or in many cases, people are killed, and the families win maybe a lawsuit, you know? And people are conditioned to settle for some like cash, you know, money as like a victory. So I, I'm thoroughly convinced that we need to go there. Now, the U.S. is not a signator with the Organization of American States, the criminal court, International Criminal Court, but I don't care. I think that, like, physically, like, taking a petition, I'm thinking that we probably need just maybe 100 cases. To me, even when they say that there was a weapon involved, I don't even trust that because there's always been the tradition of a drop gun. Or nowadays, you probably know a cell phone. A cell phone constitutes a weapon in the mind of an officer. You know, oh, well, I saw something shiny, you know, and they can never get convicted because of that. It's just, it's an epidemic. The violence that I lived, people were still being beaten in those days. Nowadays, it seems like people people skip that part. It's just that they think there's a danger. That's grounds for shooting. And unfortunately, the result is there's no country in the world, especially no de- Democrat, you know, democracy, Western democracies. There's no country that's even close, not even anywhere near close to the killings that happen in this country. That's why I say we're in a crisis, and I wish I didn't have to be involved in this. You know, I don't want to be involved in this. I'd rather do anything except deal in this topic, just like almost every single person that I know, spouse, uh, sibling, family, they don't want to do this either. But it's not a choice. It's got to fight for your own family, fight for their dignity, for the justice, you know. I was a member of another organization for survivors of torture and political violence, an identical mindset. Nobody wants to do this, you know. But it's like, if you don't do it, who will? You know, even though it's torturous to to do this. But I think, and I I actually am very impressed, you know, because I'm I'm a member of an organization, Justice Families, that the warriors are young women, you know, young, uh, mostly women, you know. Nobody's a robot, you know. So you can do it for two, three years maybe, and then it's like you can't do it anymore, you know. And for me, this is 40 years. That's why I say, I don't want to be here again, you know. It's like I used to tell people when they would tell me, hey, would you ever forgive the cops that uh, almost killed you? And I would always say, of course, in prison, you know. We can't have completion, you know, without justice, you know. You know, there's this ethos out there that, like, it's not about them, it's about yourself. And I go, that's nice, but why do they get to roam free, you know? In other words, I can forgive them, but they can kill again. 
or you know, like, and beat people again. And and just so you know, like I don't really think this is a problem or issue of police or law enforcement abuse. I see it as the judicial system that is the problem. In other words, if you have no convictions, what detracts an officer from doing whatever they want? If they know that they're not gonna get, they're not gonna get punished, they're not gonna get charged. So what what holds them back? Nothing. Well, the day you see the judicial system, the day you see a judge, you know, the prosecutors uh, file charges, murder, felony charges, and seek convictions with, again, life in prison, et cetera, and you see it consistently, I think that's when you see the abuse, the brutality, you know, the killing. That, that's when they stop. And I don't think it's a contradiction, but I won two trials, and I still to this day do not believe in the judicial system. You know, whatever happened with me was like a miracle. It's really striking, in fact, to win both cases, to win the case of having your charges against you dropped, and then again to win a, a civil case and a judgment in your favor. Yeah, well, it was a full trial, 36 days. It was amazing. When I testified, I mean, that was the most difficult thing I ever happened in my life. It was worse than what happened that night because... I knew exactly what was going to happen, and there was no way to stop it, you know? So it's almost like being in a psychological torture chamber. And so every little detail came out. And when I walked off the stand, my attorney was crying. I remember telling him, I said, I said, um, you know, I know that because of what the jury just heard, I know we won the trial. And I told him, I said, but believe me, it was not worth it. I think years later, knowing that nobody else wins, you know, maybe now I can say it was worth it because I had no idea that things would always remain the same. You know, thinking that, well, now that I've won, maybe other people start winning too. But no, so nobody wins still. And now I look at it like, well, I guess it was not only worth it, it was beyond worth it, you know, because it was like a miraculous, you know, defense uh, uh yeah. I you know, I don't feel good that that's why I say I don't believe in the judicial system. I mean, you would think maybe there would be 50-50, you know, like we have 50% win, 50% lose, but we're talking like 99.999%. How could that be? You know, immigration is even worse. There's only been one trial. That is one case, you know. And you know the case, Jose Elena Rodriguez. Referring to the case along the border in Nogales of Border Patrol agent shooting into Mexico and killing an unarmed teenager. Absolutely. And there's never been trials for anybody else. And, you know, there's one other phase, and that is to determine whether a citizen of Mexico can sue a U.S. law enforcement officer, or in this case, a Border Patrol but the point is, all the killings that have happened in probably the last 10, 12 years, no prosecutions. It's like, and, and you know, this is what I make a connection at the very end of the book, that when you talk about murdered and missing indigenous African and migrant women, I mean, those, that, those numbers are off the charts also. But you know where I made the connection? Because I used to always think that when you're dealing with law enforcement, you're talking about the state. You're talking about you, we pay these people. 
Right. And when some hoodlum kidnaps or kills a woman, well, that's not law enforcement. That's just a hoodlum, right? But then finally it dawned on me, you know what? There is a connection between the, the, the types of cases. And the connection is dehumanization. That's why I talk about 1492. Dehumanization is obvious. That is, a person is not considered fully human, if human at all. So why is it you have thousands and thousands of missing and murdered indigenous African and migrant women um, killed or missing, and yet there's no investigations? You know, why is it that all these police or why is it all the immigration officers kill and we live with impunity? The same reason, dehumanization. Red, black, and brown people not considered human, you know. Um, indigenous, African, migrant women not considered human at all either. So that's to me is where you see that connection. One of the things that always comes to my mind is why does this violence continue? And I always give the same answer all the time, but it's but it's very cyclical. You know, we're less than human. And it's like, no, we're actually fully human, you know? But why does this society continue to act and treat us as though we are less than human? How else do you change this, you know? You know, with the families that I work with, you know, the mothers, the spouses, the siblings, they are the kindest people you'll ever meet. They're not vicious, you know? You would think of anybody wanted revenge, anybody who had this vicious core to them, it would be them, right? Because, but it's the opposite, you know? They don't want people hurt, you know? I think the number one concern, for, the two concerns, justice is the first, but the second one is how to help each other, you know, how to support each other. Because often they feel manipulated. It's like they're second, you know. The cause is first and they're second. And they're like, why would people do that? You know, like, we're, we're still suffering. We're still going through trauma. And yet it's like people would rather put a cause in front of, you know, their feelings, so to speak. So I just want to say that I have this utmost respect, you know, because they're warriors, but they're also human, you know? And uh, that's renewed my faith in the sense of, I'm telling you, I'm like, I don't want nothing to do with this anymore. So I'm glad that there's youngsters out there, younger people that are more than willing to do that fighting, even though even though they themselves will tell you that it hurts them, you know? Part of the book includes about, I think, 13 family members, you know, 13 people that have contributed their own testimonials on violence. We'll have to leave it there. You've been listening to Roberto Rodriguez, or Dr. Sintley. He's an associate professor in the Mexican-American Studies Department at the University of Arizona. He's a longtime award-winning journalist and columnist, and his latest book is entitled Yolki, A Warrior Summon from the Spirit World, Testimonios on Violence. We just heard a little bit of what you can find in the book, and I want to especially thank you for sharing your story, even knowing that there is trauma attached to sharing of your story. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. You can find this and all recent episodes of 30 Minutes on the 30 Minutes program page at kxci.org.